if you came here for a funeral, if you thought this was awake, you're in the wrong place, and I know you're not. Hello and welcome to the Crew Review Podcast, a Columbus Crew post-game show where me and another writer from Massive Report review the crew. At least that's what we normally do. I'm your host, Andrew Atkins, and today is a very special day for this podcast. You see, there wouldn't be a crew review if there wasn't a crew, and there wouldn't be a crew if there wasn't a Save the Crew, and that's what we're here to talk about right now. I thought I knew a lot about Save the Crew, and as a crew fan, I'm sure you did too. That was until I got my hands on a book called Accidental Heroes, The Grassroots Movement That Helped Save the Crew, authored by Pete McGinty. It is that book that made me realize I knew little to nothing about what it really (laughs) took to save the crew and what really uh, went on behind the scenes to get to the point that the crew needed saving. So joining me today is a very special guest Pete McGinty, the author of Accidental Heroes. Pete, how are you doing today? Doing great, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Pete, first off, I think I heard somewhere, I read somewhere, this is your first book you've ever published. It's my, yeah, it's my first book, um, first and only, and hopefully not the last, but, uh, you know, we'll we'll have to see how this goes. And, and, um, you know, it's funny, I've I've always uh, had a goal to write a book. I've tried to write a couple novels that, you know, sucked, you know, they never <laughs> went anywhere and, and uh, didn't take it as seriously as I, as I should have. And when this opportunity, um, I guess it presented itself or I, I found it, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, we can talk about that. Uh, I decided, you know, this might be the great way to do it. And, um, you know, once I got started, I had, uh, I, it wasn't like I could quit. I had an obligation to the Save right. the Crew team. You know, they knew I was doing it. They, they, we agreed that I would do it. They, they, um, we, we went into a, you know, a deal of sorts and, and it wasn't like I could just, you know, drop the ball on them. So, um, it was kind of good to have that kind of pressure on me to, to finish it. So, you know, and I want to get into how this opportunity presented itself and how you got involved. But before, before we do that, the thing that, that strikes me as funny about this being your first book and you saying you started with a couple of novels. I, uh, I've done the same thing where I, I get this idea and I think I'm going to write a book. And then I get about two, three chapters in and I never go back to it. Now, I was reading this book and the thing that kept coming to my mind is this seems like an insane amount of work. Uh, I've had to transcribe interviews for Massive Report before, just little snippets of it. And it's exhausting to me to transcribe. This is interview after interview after interview. This is uh, press releases. This is interviews on the news. It's insane to me the amount of work that had to go into this book. It's yeah, crazy. I, I probably, uh, I may have underestimated um, <laughs> the amount of work. It wasn't, you know, I didn't know what I didn't know. And I didn't know a lot about Save the Crew. And, right. you know, I first met Morgan. That's how, you know, we were introduced uh, as part of another project I was working on. And, and after several meetings is when we started talking about the, you know, the notion of maybe writing a book. But I still didn't know there were 19 people who were part of the Save the Crew leadership team. I didn't know the skill sets they had. I didn't know the, the hundreds of volunteers behind them. 
And so um, I went into this pretty naive, actually. And, you know, I, I uh, my style of, and I do a lot of, I do a lot of writing. It's not like I don't write. I mean, I, right. I, I write a lot. I, I do a lot of interviews and I have a, you know, my style is I record the interview. Like you said, I record it and transcribe it. I'm old school. I print everything out. Um, probably did. I interviewed Morgan Hughes the most because um, he's the primary narrator. Um, spent every Thursday afternoon uh, uh, on his back porch for several months. Um, interviewed all 19, all other 18 uh, Save the Career Leadership team folks. Interviewed Alex Fisher, Doug Kreidler, Steve Lyons, other folks. So all of those interviews, probably 50 interviews in total. Um, that range from one hour to three hours, some even longer. And then you're right, I, there was so much um, data available, so much content available with, you know, newspaper articles, TV reports, um, blog posts, um, you know, posts from other supporter groups. And, and, you know, I dug through all that. I watched videos. I transcribed videos. I, um, the other really special gem of all this were the um, – that I could go back and Twitter. And I, right. could, I could, you know – find all these tweets, you know, from October, uh, you know, 16th and, and uh, October 12th and everything in between. And, and I find that really interesting. You utilize that a lot in the book. You have, uh, you'll be turning a page and you'll see a tweet from Morgan or a tweet from Save the Crew. And, and yeah. what I thought was so brilliant about that is for a lot of us who weren't in the, the Save the Crew leadership, who weren't really involved behind the scenes, that's where we saw the fight taking place was Twitter. Yeah. So it kind of, uh, it reminded me of being in the moment when I was kind of on the outskirts looking in and I thought I was, I was a keyboard warrior. I was hashtag and save the crew left and right. But uh, it, it reminded me of that feeling. And it was, it was cool. It kind of tied me into the behind the scenes in real time when I'd see a tweet. I'm like, oh, I remember that tweet. I like that tweet. Yeah. Then you remember all the big day to day tweets. So, <laughs> I, uh, you know, which unfortunately, he's still doing those to this <laughs> <Yeah>. date. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and the, the Twitter was it's just a marvelous tool for me because, I mean, think about it. It all started with a tweet. Right. You know, with the Grant Wall tweet. And, right. and then I, I love, you know, the, the book uh, lays out the, the first Morgan tweet after that was simply, well, I don't know if I can swear on <laughs> You the, can so say whatever you want. Well, fuck. You know, <laughs> and, you know, we really... We really had to go back and edit the book several times and take out <laughs> the F-bombs, but there were a few that we left in there and that was one of them. But um, yeah, I had, I ended up with like four binders. I'm talking three ring binders of stuff. And, and uh, you know, it's just part of the, part of the challenge in the process was figuring out what to put in and what not to put in. Right. And, and then the order of things was, was, was uh, challenging, but you know, it was, a, it was such a great subject that there was all this, information. I think I have 72 citations in the book, um, whether they be dispatch articles or blog posts from other supporter groups or um, clips from ESPN, you name it. Uh, and uh, yeah, that was, I, I ended up, there were times I had just a mountain of content and I was trying to sort through and I was tagging things and putting post-it notes and color coding all the stuff. And, and there were a couple of times I felt rather overwhelmed with Yes just how am I going to get through this and organize it in some fashion that it tells the story in the right way. Um, it, it keeps, um, you know, it sticks to what's relevant and what's interesting you know, because there's lots of rabbit holes I could go down. I mean, they were, right. I mean, you know, talking to the, the 19 
folks on the leadership team, there were so many rabbit holes, so many stories they told, so many things I, you know, that were really interesting to me that when other people kind of read some drafts and things, they were like, I don't know how this makes, I don't know what the connection of this to saving the team is. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. It's, it was just a fun story. It's, you know, and, and so and I had something. To, uh, yeah. It's something that might be interesting to a diehard crew fan, but like yeah. you, you also want to keep this book. And that's one thing I, I put out about this book when I was reading it. I said, it doesn't matter if you're a Columbus crew fan. It doesn't even matter if you're a soccer fan. If you're a sports fan or just a fan of seeing good guys win, you need to read this book. So like you said, there's certain yeah. things that as somebody who's deeply invested, I'm sure by the time you were done writing this book in Columbus mm-hmm. and in the crew, there's stories that I would probably love that somebody who uh, mm-hmm. maybe is from a different state just wants to, to read the book, but wouldn't necessarily, necessarily care about. Well, maybe I have enough content for another book. That's, mm-hmm. I was going to say, you could probably put out an entire series <laughs> of uh, <laughs> just short stories involved well, in Save the Crew. One thing I'm doing right now is I'm interviewing um, – different people, primarily leadership team folks. And, uh, and I'm, I'm uh, putting, uh, putting that stuff on my YouTube channel and also on my, my website, which is savethecrewbook.com and, and uh, transcribing some of those into blog posts and so forth. So there's other content that we're adding to this. And, and one other point I'd like to make, you know, the, there were hundreds of volunteers. I think in the back of the book, I list like 200 to 300 names. Mm-hmm which doesn't even come close, right? And I, I've been contacted by a few people that said, hey, I was, you know, I love the book, whatever, and I was glad to see you list volunteers in the back, but I was disappointed that my name wasn't mentioned because I did a lot of work too. And, you know, so, um, you know, where do you start and stop with that? Right. And I, I mentioned this individual, I said, well, maybe there's a way we can convene a bunch of other volunteers and we can, you know, kind of augment this with, their story right and so there could be other content that comes out of this maybe not in the form of a you know a, an expensive nice slick book but you know there's other ways of uh, disseminating information and content so you never know right and and like i said it's a it's a book that i really feel like anybody who has even heard of save the crew should really invest the time and, and read and really delve deep in. But the one thing I'll say for me as a crew fan and as somebody who uh, was affected by that first tweet, was affected by the news that this team might leave. I remember the same sentiments Morgan shared on Twitter. That's how we all felt. And your book really goes into depth about the first night that people read that tweet. And I remember laying in my bed, my wife next to me angry because she, you know, she's not this diehard crew fan. She doesn't care about sports that much. She knows I like the crew, but she's like, I'm sure they're not going anywhere. Just go to bed because I'm tossing and turning and I'm restless. And you capture that so well at, at a lot of points in this book where there were several times I'd have to put the book down and just kind of wipe tears out of my eyes. And reliving that was difficult. And uh, I, I'm curious for you, um, when did... Uh, at what point were you really vested and saved the crew? You said that um, you said mm-hmm. that you were work- met Morgan on an outside project, and yeah. and there's actually a, a a passage in the book. You say to Morgan, "You need to write a book," and he says, "Why don't you write it?" Yeah, he yeah. said, "I'd rather drink poison." Yeah, so, it actually, was that the point that uh, you, you? I'd rather drink poison. Yeah. <laughs> um, well. Uh, I think by that time, yeah, I, you know, I, um, 
I would not consider myself or, or historically you not consider myself the kind of, of crew fan that you are, right? Or your typical listener and, and reader is. Um, but I was a casual fan. I, I love all things Columbus. I went to quite a few games. I, I, um, but I wasn't, you know, on the front line of the Save the Crew movement. That's not what took me to this project. And I, I, you know, what took me to this project was writing something for the Columbus Partnership on what's called the Columbus Way, which is the, the kind of cultural practice of how our private and public sectors work together. It's, it's in the book a lot. Right. And, you know, we wanted to write a case study on Save the Crew. And that's, I didn't, I didn't know Morgan. I, I think once I saw him, I'm like, yeah, I've seen that guy, you know. Right. Um, and I didn't know if it was primarily just Morgan at that time or I didn't know. Very naive, right? And, but as he started telling me the story, um, I realized there was so much more here. And what I was really uh, drawn to was the passion mm -hmm. of, of, of you guys, you know, the fans. And that, that the, the, the loss was, was deemed so great that, you know, literally, I mean, when I did my interviews, I mean, people cried often, right. you know, recounting stories and things. But with Morgan, you know, it was, I spent about two hours with him having a couple beers at Seventh Son and came back and started writing this case study. It was two weeks to the day. Well, two weeks to that, from that day later is October 12th, 2018. So it was September 28th, 2018. The crew wasn't saved yet. Right. I wasn't hearing great things like most people in Columbus, right? We thought, oh, it's a great effort. These guys are doing great stuff and this movement is great. But I mean, how often does you know, an effort like this change the course of history, right? When an owner wants to pick up and move a team, the owner picks up and moves the team. Right. So I looked at Morgan and he's just bearing his soul. And I'm like, looking at him like, but you know, but what if this doesn't work? And he's looking at me, he, he looks at me like, this is the stupidest question I could possibly <laughs> ask. It's going to work, you know? Um, I went home literally worried about him. You know, I talked to my wife. I said, I met this guy and he's like, you know, this guy has given a, a year of his life and and he's not the only one. There are dozens of other people that have just given so much to this. And, you know, if this doesn't work, I mean, it's, I mean I'm really worried about the mental state of these people, you know. And, uh, but lo and behold, October 12th came. I ran into Morgan at another event. Um, it was a, an event at the Columbus Metropolitan Club at luncheon. And it was after the crew was saved and, and the crew actually was being honored. Saved the crew was being honored. Alex Fisher was there, D. Haslam, Dr. Pete. And I just ran into him and I'm like, Hey, Hey, how you doing? Good to see you. Hey, you did it. You know? Um, I said, let's get together again and, you know, have another beer and talk more. I need to continue this story with you. And we met probably five or six times just over beer and talking, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's when I really started learning about this. And so when you asked me when I became vested, it was, it was around that time when, when, when we said, you know, when I posed to him, Hey, you should write a book. And he said, F no, I'd rather drink poison. Why don't you write it? I really had to think about, could I bite this project off? What right. would this mean? What kind of time commitment? Is this the book I'm going to really write now? And, and, um, and lo and behold, it turned into, but, you know, I, I, I had to be vested. I had to really kind of get inside the, under the skin of you guys and, and the save the crew team in terms of understanding the passion to where it was like, I understood the religion. You know, I maybe didn't understand it from the standpoint of, you know, going to church every every week for the previous 10 years. But I, I, I 
got indoctrinated pretty quickly. And, you know, it's like I, I had to, because one thing I wanted to make sure was, if I'm going to tell the story, I had to capture the emotion of it. Right. I had to capture the, the, the spirit of it. I had to capture the soul of it. And it wasn't like I could just write about those things on the surface. And I really wanted to capture the voice of the people behind this movement. So a lot of it is their voice, of course. You know, I just kind of, kind of put some order to it um, and added some context. But um, So much so it's yeah. their voice that uh, I actually wrote down while I was reading this book. I said, this book reads like, uh, like you're watching a documentary. It felt like you could make a documentary and just word for word use this book. And uh, maybe that's your next project. Maybe you get behind the camera. You never know. It could, it could be. It is It is a historical story, right? It really I mean, it's, is. It's a historical story. It, it was, you know, capturing the sequence of events, the, the again, the relevancy of events, the uh, emotion of events and so forth. And and so it's a it's a historical capture of, 12 months, almost to a day, right? 360 days, I think. Right. Um, that, uh, you know, literally starts on October 16th, 2017 and ends on October 12th, 2018. And, and even then, then uh, there was still a few months after that where it wasn't officially official. Uh, we had a pretty good feeling and <laughs> like Morgan was, he was sure before anybody else was, but I remember there was still that few month period where there was a little bit of unrest. But uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you, so you said before you weren't necessarily a diehard crew fan. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I think you even say in the book that you'd been to games, but you were never like, you were never the diehard after writing this book. Does that change for you? Seeing oh, yeah. the emotion, uh, the passion you're, you're involved with probably the 19 most passionate crew fans <laughs> in history and uh, especially number one being Morgan. And uh, how do you feel coming out of the other side of that? Yeah, there's no question. We um, certainly, once we started writing the book, I say we, but it was um, kind of went into the project in earnest, like knew we were going to do it maybe in March, started doing the interviews in April of, God, I can't count. Was it last year or two? Um, and, and I started going to, we started going to games, my wife and I, and, you know, sitting in the Nordeck and, and just sitting all over the stadium, right. And experiencing it and talking to people and, you know, from kids to families to, you know, you name it. And it was, um, yeah, it, it, it sucked us in and, and, um, you know, now it's just wonderful to, you know, see the product on the field and, um, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to many more. I mean, unfortunately, we can't go to games right now, but I know that's going to change. And, you know, we're going to get season tickets in the new stadium. And, um, you know, it's going to be, you know, there's a there's a bond now. I almost feel like um, I'm, I'm not part of the movement, but I'm, I'm we're, we're all we're forever connected. You are. And yeah. I think it's so important. And Morgan seemed to know all along a lot of the speeches he made that you uh, transcribed in the book. He talks about when the book is written on Save the Crew, where were you going to be? What are you going to have to do with it in history? And uh, I think it was so important that somebody did come along and put this into a book. Because like you said, this isn't just important for Columbus. This isn't just important for soccer. This is unprecedented in sports. And I think it's important to show the world that the the league doesn't own these teams. The trust fund billionaires, they don't 
own these teams. That's what's different yeah. about soccer. Soccer is supposed to be rooted in community. And mm-hmm. MLS, uh, they have a lot of good qualities, but they like their shiny new toys. And at one time, Columbus was their shiniest toy. Mm-hmm. And it seems like it, you know, in time, it became their toy that was shoved off in the corner and they thought that they could trade it in for a new toy. And it, yeah. it was really important for the sport in America to continue to grow for you not to rip the roots right out from under it. And I think the fact that you took that and you documented that, I think it shows that you understand the importance historically that Save the Crew had. And I think it's something that the message needs to get out there. You know, it's funny you talk about um, how Morgan would talk about when this book is written. The first time he said that, I think, was in his second city council speech on October 30th um, after, you know, I mean, that, that month. And he said, you know, he looked at city council and he was addressing the mayor and city leaders. You know, you're right. When this book is written, what's your legacy going to be? How are you going to be remembered? You know, what's the last thing I I think one of the lines was, what's the last thing this book is going to say about you? Mm -hmm. And I found that, I mean, the instinct of this group all along was just blew my mind. And that being one of those pieces, because you're, you're just a week or two removed from the announcement. And he's already talking about when this book is written. <laughs> I mean, um, and lo and behold, it did get written. And, um, but he's holding the, the leadership's feet to the fire. Right. And, you know, they talked about, you know, what I found out um, over time was they, well, actually found this, uh, this part out since the book came out, just through other conversations, because we were talking at one point about, you know, I went to a leadership meeting and I, I, I didn't really know I was having to pitch the book idea. I thought, I'm just going to show up and talk about, hey, I'm the guy that wants to write the book. Let's get going. Right. And no, they were very, like, very brand protective as they should have been. And, and they were like, you know, who's this guy? You know, you've never right. written a book before. You want to write our story and so forth. And I found out that they, um, and not, not um, you know, they get reason to, to think this way too. Like, yeah, we're going to have a book written about us. Yeah, who's, who's going to, you know, who's going to play us in the movie? Uh, you know, they, they literally were thinking these things. And, and so it's not, it wasn't like far-fetched for them to really um, feel like they had a, a kind of a role in deciding who was going to write their story, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I felt so privileged when they told me, go for it. And um, now, especially looking back, knowing how protective they were about the brand and about the movement, and how I didn't know then, right? I mean, I didn't, right. I didn't know enough then. And knowing how, how they must have been so attuned to the fact that this has to be captured just the right way. And boy, this Yahoo guy, that Pete, who's coming, you know, <laughs> he could really screw this thing up for us. He could write some, I mean, he, you know, but, but they, maybe that was part of their instinct also. They, they sensed that, you know, I was going to be able to somehow come through for them. Maybe they believed in me more than I believed in myself. I don't know. It seems like through the book you, you document these guys will come in with a, a really great skill set providing a lot, but they were, um, they were careful and they were patient and they would wait until they were a hundred percent sure that this person checked out and that this person's trustworthy and they'd bring mm-hmm. them in. And, you know, you talk a lot in it, how they, they run this thing like a business. Mm-hmm. And I think what they did so excellently because like I said, I had no idea there was this 19-member leadership council. 
uh, I had no idea how deep this was. And I think what they did so well is they made somebody on the outskirts using hashtag save the crew, buying a scarf. They made you feel as involved as they were. And that shows a level of humility that these guys had, that they weren't out for credit. Uh, you cover that a lot. They weren't out to be the heroes. No. You, they were out to save the team. That is all that mattered to them. Yeah. You know, they were, they were stewards, if you will, of, of the spirit of the community they were cheerleaders. They were, um, they, they took the temperature of the community. They, they, they kind of put the guardrails around emotions and so forth and tried to protect the, the sense that, you know, okay, we can be angry, but let's not use our anger in a bad way. Let's channel it in a good way. Let's mm -hmm. channel our anger into, into activity um, because, you know, they didn't want to make it about Austin. They didn't want to make Austin the bad guy. They didn't want to even mention Precourt's name. He was just the, the former owner. Uh, and, you know, it wasn't about, um, it was about what our community was losing. So you're right, you've said it, it's, it's about the community, right? And they were stewards of our community, uh -huh. community, big community, right? Big C, right? And they were stewards of the soccer community and the crew community. And they took that responsibility so personally, and, and they, um, they were so careful with it, because you know, they didn't know, you know, they, they did, they built a business, they built an organization and they really built a campaign. They went about it like it was a marketing campaign, like a cause related marketing campaign. Mm -hmm. But keep in mind when they started this campaign, they didn't know if it was going to be a two week campaign or a one month campaign or a six month camp. They didn't have any idea. Right. And I've got a 30 year um, history with, you know, being with ad agencies and working in that field. You start a campaign, a campaign has a start and it's got to finish and you know when it's going to peak and you know how to weave different messages in. They just had to have that instinct going forward all the way through to be so careful with it and to be stewards of it and to to make sure that they kind of, I don't know if they brought the community along at the right speed, but never let things get too high, too low, you know, kept this sense of realism around things, except for Morgan's big day-to-day -day tweets. Um, <laughs> but uh, that, that always threw wrenches and things. Um, but they 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 took this on like it was the most serious thing they'll ever do. And Mark Vucinich, I talked to him this morning, you know, we did a little uh, recording and, and it's going to be a YouTube video. He, he talked about how this is the, the most important, you know, he did it not as his job, day job, but he did it as part of his profession. And it's the most important case study and the most important experience he has professionally that he now will take with him and, and, you know, it, he may never do anything, and I think this is true of a lot of them. David Miller said the same thing. I never, I never may do anything this grand again, right? And and uh, you know, they they just took this on, and um, it could have gone. Think about it. It could have gone in so many different directions. You know, they organized themselves. They brought the right skill sets in. They were very careful. They had people hitting them up all the time companies even wanted to hijack this thing wanted to sponsor them and wanted to give money to them wanted to control things and and people coming to them like you know i won't say snake oil salesmen people promising things that you know they had to really weigh and be careful about like who can really you know pay off what they're promising and 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 everyone they brought on to leadership stayed nobody they didn't kick anybody out no one left no one said hey this isn't for me after three months they were all in it, and and um, and they had each other's backs, 
And they right. never made themselves more important than Save the Crew. Save the Crew was always the most important thing. And the cause of Save the Crew was the most important thing the whole way through. And it was because of the community. You know, there's two narratives that I, I drew from the book. And interesting, interesting enough, I didn't know where you ended up on one of these narratives. So I wanted to ask you. <laughs> right. The two narratives that you can draw from this are, are one, in the beginning... Anthony Precourt was legitimate. He came in, he rebranded the team, he did some quality of life improvements uh, at Crew Stadium. He, he got some things done in the beginning, and, and the narrative is maybe he didn't really know what he was getting himself into, maybe he didn't know what it took to run a successful soccer team, and maybe he started very early on seeing the easier way out is that shiny new expansion team. That's narrative one where mm -hmm. he had good intentions, but mm -hmm. was in over his head narrative two. And it's almost conspiratorial, but I found myself buying into that conspiracy on, on more than one occasion is his plan from day one backed by Don Garber and MLS was uh, I'm going to, I'm going to buy this team cheap and I'm going to, or this uh, team cheap and I'm going to flip it and I'm going to move this team to Austin and uh, we're going to maybe make things look a little worse than they are in Columbus. Maybe uh, you, you talk about closing gates on playoffs and funneling everything through two gates. So it makes it look like nobody's at the stadium when really there's thousands of people there. It's, it's kind of hard to believe at first, but the more you read it, there's evidence backing that. Yeah. And uh, I just, I wonder where you come, uh, where you land on that. Do you think that Precor ever had intentions of keeping the crew in Columbus, or do you think it was maybe uh, yeah. the conspiracy theory? Right. Um, I believe, <laughs> I, I'm more inclined to believe scenario one. I think that, uh, and, and now most Save the Crew folks are more like yourself, like, you know, Morgan has a quote in the book, you know, a lot, a lot of people gave him the benefit of the doubt, I'm not one of them, you know, um, there were certainly people that thought that there was sabotage, and, and uh, but then there's the more um, kind of measured perspective that, you know, you laid out in scenario one, that he, 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 he came in, he thought, you know, it's great to own a franchise. I'm, I'm in Columbus. That's where my franchise is. Uh, that was what was available. That's the deal I could strike and so forth. So I've got the team. But I, I think he didn't know what he didn't know, and he didn't know how to run a business. He didn't know how to run a team. And it was tougher than he thought. And uh, he, But I, I think he made he made as good as he could make as a good faith effort. You know mm -hmm. I mean? It may not have been the same effort that um, somebody else would have made, but he did what he was capable of doing as Anthony Precourt, uh, which maybe wasn't nearly enough. And then I think when things, you know, it was interesting. We were a winning team, mm -hmm. you know, so the product, I mean, and then, you know, he, he, then he stopped investing, right. And he started, there were things that, you know, you could point to in retrospect that seemed like they were manipulation some sabotage and things. I think it got to the point, and this is my personal feeling at this point, right? That uh, it became tougher than he thought it was, that Columbus wasn't the, the sexy market that, you know, it, he probably knew we weren't going to be the sexy market, right? And here, Austin, who had never even paid their $5 million franchise fee, expansion fee, 
uh, was, you know, the, the Austin deal was carved out that if he ever wanted to move from Columbus, he could just go to Garber and say, I'm ready to go. And Austin's going to be there mm. waiting for me. And even Austin didn't know that, you know, so, um, so they didn't exactly welcome him with open arms. Right. <clears throat> so I think he was really naive to a lot of it, but I think he just, uh, I don't know. It's kind of like maybe when you're in a job that, you know, stops going well and, and you start checking out, you know, you get to the point where you can't check back in. Um, I think he maybe just couldn't check back into Columbus. You know, he, he just kind of gave up and, and Garber, you know, Garber's responsibility is to the owners. So, you know, he's got to make sure, you know, that, that's, that's his board, you know, mm. source, right. He's got to, he's got to take care of the owners. And so he had to try to take care of pre-court. I don't think Garber intentionally was, um, I say intentionally was, was careless or reckless with Columbus. I think he was, but, but I think that, uh, I think it was, he was just in a tough spot the way it worked out. You know, Garber can say it's an elegant solution. Everybody wins. Columbus wins. Precourt wins. Austin wins. But um, I don't think, I mean, going back to your question, I don't think it was like from day one he knew, I mean, this was the predestined path right. that he knew he was going to follow. I do think that he probably had some comfort and security knowing it was in his back pocket. Right. Pull out I'm, and say, okay, I'm ready to play that card. I'm inclined to agree with you. I think there. the truth lies somewhere in the middle. I think... I think in the beginning, Precourt had good intentions. We saw it with the rebrand, and we saw it when he came mm -hmm. on board. He did do some positive things. I think, like you said, he lost interest pretty quickly or got overwhelmed pretty quickly, and maybe that made him withdraw from it. Um, and then I think the like where I say the truth lies somewhere in the middle is you you read into the things that were uncovered by Save the Crew, and you, uh, you read into some of the... Um, quiet lies, I believe is what it was called. And, and you start to realize where they were saying business metrics and they were saying it's not a viable market. There's, there seems to be a significant amount of evidence to the contrary. And there seems to be evidence that they were trying, once the decision was made in Precord's mind, I think he wanted to spin that narrative as best he could. You know, um, a couple of my favorite people in the whole journey were Keith Noss and Tim Myers. Mm -hmm. You know, Tim Myers was the author of the what's the truth document and then quiet lies and Keith Noss. Um, they're both researchers. They're both analytical people. They, they both went to work immediately and separately and separate from any other save the crew movement on what did we miss? What's going on here? I'm going to start digging into this. Right. And what they uncovered was so important in kind of disproving the narrative and or, or or proving save the crew narrative that there's some fishy stuff going on right and had it not been for that i mean they really uncovered a lot of stuff that were was uh to your point it, it appeared pretty devious pretty pretty uh manipulative the question i guess becomes you know what what came first was was that always it's like once you decide you're out going back to maybe the job analogy, then I'm like, then screw it. Then, you know, close the gates, then, you know, cut the Hispanic radio station and strike a TV deal that cuts out half our audience, um, you know, cut the promotional, but, you know, but to get to that point, was it the best good faith effort made? Um, 
but it was rather stunning, you know, like the designated player option, right? Like, mm-hmm. how did he give up on, you know, we had a winning, we had a playoff team. We, we could have won the MLS Cup. That how's that, how's that going to look? Right. You know? I mean, he decides to go into Austin and we win the Cup. I mean, we could have. We didn't, but we could have. We had a nice run. Right. Um, we and, went deep and, in the playoffs. Yeah. Despite all that stuff, right? You know, and, what's funny is you, you do so well at voicing the Save the Crew leadership you do so well at giving them their voice in this book. I would have sworn you would have went with option two just because <laughs> that's, that's the narrative that's strong in this book, but you're, you're presenting their narrative. And I, I think that's a testament of how well you did. I think, I think there was only, um, there might've been only two people that would, would choose the, you know, I mean, the, there were a couple that said, you know, I, kind of what I said, that that's, they thought he tried, but, Mm-hmm. Um, the rest didn't, by the way, and and uh, but that's I think where they're, they're you know they're, they're granted their emotions uh, and their um, you know they were so vested. I mean, this was they were fighting against the machine. They were you know they 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 fought for a year to disprove all the narratives that Precord and Garber were trying to say out there. So mm-hmm. of course they were um, very dug in, and and their position I think they had to come at it from a place, even though they didn't you know, outwardly communicate that anger. But I think they, they had to come at it. They were in the bunker and they were fighting against the machine. They were fighting against all odds. They were going to fight to the death. And so I think they had to have this common enemy um, who was truly an enemy, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, so if, if they'd have kind of um, faulted on giving him too much of the benefit of the doubt, would they have worked so hard? Would they have tried so hard? Would they have, you know, worked 20 or 30 hours a week or would they have worked, you know, I mean, I, I think that was the motivation for them that they, they were not going to let, I mean, you know, he, he, be, he was an, he, in their mind, he was an evil figure, right? He was an unsavory mm-hmm. character along with, you know, Greeley and his whole band and so forth. Uh, and, and so they had to, they had to have that kind of thing to push back against. Right. The, right. You know, and you almost and, had to make him out to be the ultimate bad guy to fight that hard to defeat him. I think so. I mean, I think they had to really believe that, that, you know, um, yeah, I think, I think they had to believe that this was a really such an unjust thing that he right. was trying to do and that Garber was seemingly supportive of. And, and with that, um, you know, it's like anything else. The more unjust something is, the more you're going to fight against it. The more you're going to, you know, go as far as you need to go uh, to to um, push back and to to try to get the result you want to get. And I think with Garber, it's not so much evil. It's not so much that Garber is this bad guy. What it does, though, is it shows sometimes MLS's uh, how their finger is off the pulse of what really makes soccer special and we saw it when mls started in 1996 they tried to really americanize mls we saw uh the clock running the opposite way that it's you know it was a countdown instead of a count up it was uh there could be no draws we had to go to penalty kicks uh the clock stopped when the ball went out of bounds we saw all these american style rules being added to soccer that just kind of showed mls didn't know what soccer fans wanted um we still to this day have Americanized a, a bit of the sport with 
things like the playoff system. We know we don't see that in England. But I think allowing a team to be moved and allowing especially the first club in America, the first soccer-specific st- uh, stadium in America, the the home field for the U.S. men's national team for, for a long time was here in Columbus. And I think Garber seeming to throw his support behind that I think what it did for me, I don't look at Garber as a bad guy. I think Garber's done a lot for the sport. But it shows where his finger continues to be off the pulse of what really makes soccer different than football, uh, American football, or different than most sports is this community. It is a different kind of support. It is a different kind of energy at a soccer game than a baseball game. It becomes your family. It becomes a, a lifestyle. Being a Columbus Crew supporter, being a supporter of a soccer club, and um, I think it was Federico Iguain when he was able to speak about Save the Crew. I think I, I might be misquoting, but I think it was him who said he didn't understand it. He said, "If this happened overseas, there'd be riots." Hmm. Well, um, I never, I didn't see that quote. I did see, of course, what Ali Moreno said, you know, on ESPN and so forth. That. He even questioned whether or not, you know, what the other side of the story was, right? Um, mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I think Garber is, I think you're making a really good point. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, um, to him, it was a business. You know, he's held accountable for the business and so forth. And so that was more important than community, right? And I think the point you're making that, that really is interesting is that he chose to put his support behind pre-court as opposed to putting his support behind the community. Mm-hmm. And so he was trying to um, do everything possible to make pre-court successful and get the result pre-court wanted at the expense of the community as opposed to the other way around. Right. right. And I and, think that shows just a breakdown in the understanding of what soccer really is at its yeah. core. You got to wonder if, uh, well, certainly uh, pre-court and Garber and others didn't know what hit them mm-hmm. with this movement. <laughs> And you have to, uh, next time, if there is another time where they try to pull something like this, they're certainly going to think twice and wonder if the uh, fan base from whatever city this might be occurring in is going to rise up the same way, which I would bet they will now try. The precedent Um, has been set. Yeah, and maybe in any sport now. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, You know, social media, there's different ways of communicating now. You can mobilize more quickly and more powerfully. Um, but this becomes kind of a playbook for that. And I think, you know, there was, uh, I think, I think it's in the book. One of the quotes from some, one of the guys was that they were aware that other owners from NFL and other, you know, other, um, you know, other sports were calling Garber saying, you got to shut this thing down. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you can't, you can't let a fan base, you know, dictate this, you know, I mean, we're going to, I mean, if, you know, essentially what they were saying is, if I ever feel like I need to move to another market, I don't want my fan base rising up. You can't let this succeed, basically. I mean, I'm putting words in the mouth. But, right, but, but, but the you thought. Know, I mean, yeah. I mean, so, but, and then you're also right that soccer is different from any other sport. I mean, I, I talk about, you know, I'm a Cleveland Browns fan, and of course, today was a rotten day, but what did I expect, you know? <laughs> but uh, It's insanity to expect otherwise, right? Exactly right. And, and, uh, but when they left in 1995, I mean, and I, I consider myself a diehard Browns fan and, and uh, I was devastated. I was angry. I was sad. I was depressed, but, but I was resolved to the fact that, well, 
That's what Modell's going to do. That's, you know, there's nothing we can do about it, right? Right. And in this case, the resolve was there is something we can do about it. And there's uh, also, there's a lot in the book about um, Doug Kreidler mentoring this group. Doug Kreidler's president and CEO of the Columbus Foundation and how he really quickly understood that this is a new power movement, a grassroots movement, a mobilizing community that had such tremendous power. And he really imparted upon Morgan and others that you have to understand how much power you have. It kind of goes back to what we were talking about, about the responsibility they had to the community, right? Mm-hmm. They understood the power that they potentially had and that the impact that they potentially could have if they did this the right way, right? If they took the high road, if they didn't let anger cloud things, if they didn't let somebody hijack this and, and try to sponsor it in some way. Um, you know, you, you've got to... You know, Doug, uh, there's it's a quote in the book, I think he said, power comes from sidewalks as well as skyscrapers, you know, and, and the power in this case came from sidewalks, you know, mm-hmm. these guys and in, in, in two gals, right, um, you know, had ever stepped foot inside a boardroom, you know, they didn't know Alex Fisher, they didn't know Mayor uh, Ginther, they didn't know mm-hmm. Doug Kreiber, they didn't know any business leader, <laughs> they had no idea. Um, and they started this new power movement, which ultimately kind of married up with the old power, which is the you know the money and the mayor and you know those who are in power. And it took both to be successful. Um, yeah. What I wanted to ask you: you talked about the Cleveland Browns moving, and you talked about Art Modell. In the book, it's covered, and I think a lot of people who followed Save the Crew knew how um, impactful it was when Attorney General Dewine, now Governor Dewine. Uh, filed the lawsuit against Anthony Precourt. It's the Art Modell law stating that if you've accepted government assistance or uh, taxpayer money towards your team, you have to uh, you have to put the team for sale before moving them. You have to give six months for the team to be sold. I wonder. You said if if other if this were to happen in another city, do you think the fan base would mobilize? And I think they would because of the precedent that was set here in Columbus. Do you think, though, without that law that we had to back us up, how much weight do you put in that law? How much uh, weight do you think that lawsuit really had when it came to saving the club? A lot. Um, And the the Save the Crew team will tell you that, too. I mean, it was one of the three legs of the stool. Um, And the the most significant uh, part in that was when Zach Klein filed a motion to that they, you know, they hadn't. I believe they hadn't set a date to where that six month period went into effect. Right. Right. And so once, uh, Klein filed that motion and, and, and now they, they, they had like, okay, they had six more months that guaranteed that we'd have another season. And that brought such tremendous time because at that time it wasn't guaranteed we'd have another season. even. Right. And so once we were guaranteed to having another season, it was like a huge weight was lifted off of the Save the Crew team and, and that they believed that, well, now we've got the time. Uh, and, and, you know, they, they knew that, um, and they had signed confidentiality agreements with uh, some people where they were, uh, they had some good information being fed to them out of respect and so forth, but they had to keep it confidential. They knew there were some things potentially happening and it was a matter of, you know, if we have enough time, we're going to find the right owner and, and there's going to be a good solution to this. And when that stay was issued, um, I think they felt like this went from, you know, a 60% surety that the team would stay to a 90% surety. Mm-hmm. So it was the lawsuit and the stay. Uh, and 
you know, it, it, who knows without the lawsuit? You know, I mean, I, I, I don't know. Who, who knows? I think the but, biggest thing the lawsuit did, because it never made it to court, uh, they never ended up having to fight it because the team got sold. I think the biggest thing the lawsuit did is it, um, it delayed the process. It made it so there was more time in between the ability of moving the team. And I think MLS at that point wanted to get this over with so badly because this was such a nightmare for them in a PR sense. Can you imagine the, 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 the energy they had to spend in New York? I mean, every day it was probably like something else that the Save the Crew team did, and you hear what these guys mm -hmm. did now. Or, I mean, I, I, can't, I can't imagine. I mean, the, the, the disruption and the, the, the time spent. and Go outside know. of the Save the Crew team. Um, anything MLS put on social media, anything uh, Don Garber, anything Anthony Precart had to make his Twitter account private, anything that was tweeted was just flooded with save the crew, save the crew, save the crew. Yeah. You couldn't, you couldn't post it's Wednesday without hearing. You don't get to have a Wednesday, yeah. save the crew. It was, uh, well, it was all consuming during you that think year. About the, you think about the draft in Philadelphia, you know, where, you know, the, I mean, the Philadelphia supporters were, you know, chanting, save the crew, save the crew. You know, Garber's up there announcing the first pick in the draft and, you know, on behalf of L.A. And he floods the name. He floods mm -hmm. the, the, the year. He got the year wrong because in the back they're chanting, save the crew, save the crew. I mean, it's, it's just they mobilized not just Columbus, but fans all around the country to do exactly what you're talking about, which was just to, to disrupt and make noise and and – you know, this whole, this whole notion, if it can happen to Columbus, it can happen to you, really mobilized, you know, other fan bases. And they were more, all, more than happy to come to the defense of the crew and, and, and save the crew team and so forth uh, to protect what they knew needed to be protected, which was one of the, you know, the first franchise, the first soccer-specific stadium in North America. So, you know, it just um, – yeah, I, I, it goes back to what you know. We said Precord and Garber didn't know what hit what hit them. You know, they, I mean, they must have had nightmares. They must still have nightmares about save the crew team. I mean, my God. No yeah, water. yeah. I, I. It was it was incredible. It was something that only strengthened my love for Columbus, my love for the Columbus crew. It was uh, yeah. unprecedented, and it needed to be captured in a book. And I'm so. Uh, thankful to you that's you know I, I really from the second I, I saw this book and heard about this book I wanted to talk to you and thankfully it happened to coincide with the launch of a podcast so I had an opportunity to reach out to you and interview you and um, one thing I really wanted to do is spend any of my time and effort that I could to promote the book because it's a fantastic read and also because I'm so grateful that somebody took the time to put this on paper and and have the opportunity to get the word out there about what really happened because it was, it was a blessing for me. And it was something that I was so happy to be able to, to read and really learn what it took and really learn the depths that these people had to go and to give up a year of their lives uh, because guys like Morgan, they gave up a year of their lives and this consumed them. And I just, I wanted to have you on here because I, I think it's important that if you're a fan of the Columbus crew, it should be something you feel responsible for to get the word out there about this book. And also, I just wanted to thank you for taking the time to do it. Well, I'm, I'm honored with everything you just said. I mean, and thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, it, it uh, uh, means so much to me that, 
that this book has uh, landed that way uh, mm -hmm. with, with the, the, the fans, um, you know, that it's, it's, I think I say in the author's note, I forget where certain things are said, but I just hope I, I did them right. I hope, I hope they're, I hope they feel I captured this in the right way. Um, and they, they, I think feel that I, I did. And to the, the feedback I've gotten that, you know, um, consistent with what you just said in terms of, you know, glad the story was told, uh, think it was captured in the right way. I mean, I'm just, that's the reward for me. I'm, I'm so I'm honored. And I think when the movie is made, they have us, they have the script right now. Now I want to ask you, we, uh, let's fast forward to 2020. It's a weird year, but consistently Columbus crew is, uh, they're the top of the, they're the top of the standings in MLS. They are a pretty dominant team this year. And this is the last full season played in Mopre stadium. So if there ever to, was to be an MLS cup one, at Mopfrey Stadium, this is the year that it would happen. So let's say Don Garber has to hand the Columbus Crew the MLS Cup in front of in front of the uh, Columbus Crew fan base. Wow. Do you think that that uh, the last game MLS Cup ever played that could have ever been played at Mopfrey Stadium? Do you think that that is worth a sequel book right there? <laughs> oh my god. I thought you were going to ask me like what the fan reaction might be, but of course they may not be fans there. Um, well, we've got, yeah. we've got small groups right now. Yeah. So I have to assume, but, I have to assume unless Garber doesn't want to have to hand that trophy over in front of us. I have yeah. to assume there'd be some fans. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah. That, I mean, that, that would be, that would be a marvelous story, wouldn't it? I think it and would. I think, um, I think another marvelous story would be, can you imagine if, you know, with the new ownership and the way the team looks already, what if we put together a dynasty over the mm -hmm. next five years and then you can look back, you know, in five years and, 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 you know, and think we almost lost this team. Right. And now, you know, look where we're playing, look how we're playing, look what we're winning and look what the crew means to Columbus now. And we almost lost this jewel. And, right. and, and if it weren't for the effort, of, of save the crew and all the fans um, and the volunteers, we probably would have. Right. That, that would be something to think back on, right? It would. And uh, I want, I want to see, I want to see if it happens and I want to see if there is a, uh, if there's a sequel idea for this, uh, <laughs> the team that, the team that almost never was wins the MLS cup. So that would be I, cool. It'd be a great story. I uh, I actually wrote an article um, before the season started about why I think this is the year the crew win the cup. And one of the reasons is I think Crew Stadium deserves it. I think the fact that the only MLS cup that's ever been won in Crew Stadium is by another team, that's a disservice to that stadium. And uh, the, the primary thing is I think the city of Columbus deserves it. One of the mantras we had during Save the Crew was, you fight, you fight for us, we fight for you. Together we save the crew. Yep, it's a great TIFO, right? Yeah, the so, team yeah. that we have on the pitch is fighting for us this year. Yeah. And uh, like you said, how poetic would it be? Yep, no question about that. Um, and and you, I, I think the energy that the team gets and the front office gets and has gotten from the Save the Crew, just knowing that, that the support is here to such a degree that um, you know, how, how could you even imagine that, 
you know, before, right? I mean, even though you knew it was here, but, but there are people willing to lay everything down for it. And that's the support we have here in Columbus. And that's the community of, uh, that we have. And, uh, you know, that's what the crew means to the community. So, right. Well, yeah. I want to thank you so much for, uh, for, like I said, not only writing the book, but for coming on the podcast, for sharing your story a little bit. And uh, I, I just think it's really important that we get the word out there. This is a, a fantastic book and a fantastic story. And uh, a lot of people in Columbus feel uh, overlooked by the league we feel like uh it's kind of a running joke that we could win the mls cup and they would still talk about what lafc did that week um we are massive right we are massive massive. and uh i think it's i think it's huge that somebody took the time to put this on paper like i said and put this out so i think um the same the same people that think maybe columbus doesn't get the respect they deserve i think uh these are the same people that should go out and buy this book and uh, show that when we do get that attention, we're going to support that attention. So I want to thank you for coming on here. And I, I wanted you to tell people uh, where can they find out more about you and what you're working on now and where can they, where can they get a hold of this book? Yeah. Uh, real simple. Go to save the crew book.com save the crew book.com. You can buy it uh, directly from my website. It's also available on Amazon, but um, if you buy directly from my website, 10% of the proceeds go to fund the community assist program, which of course sends refugee and immigrant children to games. Uh, maybe not this year, but hopefully we'll have a big bank of money to, uh, right. to spend a lot of kids to games next year. Um, but yeah, save the crew book.com and I'll get, I'll get, I'll get it out to you real fast. All right. Well, that sounds great. Again, Pete, thank you so much for being here. Uh, As always, for Massive Report, I'm Andrew Atkins, and this has been The Crew Review. Glory to Columbus. Go crew. And we will see you next time when we review The Crew. distinct pleasure to present the Philip F. Anschutz Trophy to the captain of the Columbus crew, Guillermo Barros Escaloto. Or Frankie Hayden.